together in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, uh, page 1148, if you're using uh, the NIV that is supplied um, by the church. Page 1148, we commence our reading at verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop defrauding one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. But I wish that all people were even as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that now I say to the widowers and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but to the Lord. A wife is not to divorce her husband, but even if she does, Divorce, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now if the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will uh, save or win your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save or win your wife? Amen. One one four eight. If you're using a Bible that you've picked up uh, in church as you've entered this evening. We are thinking on these Lord's Day mornings uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in order to complete what we started this morning, we're doing that this evening also. This chapter is all about marriage. And it's about uh, Paul applying the truth that our Saviour taught when he was on this earth. He said, what God has joined together, let not man Put asunder. Uh, and uh, as we worked our way through this chapter and sought to understand its background, we realized that there is a group in the church in Corinth, and they think that they have a higher spiritual life than others, than the Apostle Paul, whom God used to found and establish this church. And this group are teaching that it is wrong for Christians 
to engage in the sexual relationship. And they have been saying, um, and we believe that verse 1b is the kind of mantra that you would hear them quoting in church and in personal conversation that they would have with you. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And as a result, this group expects Christians who are married to abstain from the sexual relationship within marriage. And indeed, they would prefer Christians to divorce and return to a celibate and what they would call a holier life. These issues are greatly troubling uh, to the church. And then this pressure group is also saying to those who have lost their spouse through death and who are now either widowers or widows, you must remain demarried. That's a better position to be in. And then they're saying to those who are married to uh, an unbeliever, um, that they should divorce their unbelieving spouse. Now the Apostle Paul himself is either unmarried or a widower. We can't be absolutely certain which was the case. But it was either one or the other. My own personal um, thought is that it is more likely that he was married but is now widowed. And that is because a Jewish rabbi was usually uh, a married man. And uh, Paul recognizes uh, that uh, himself as a married, uh, as a single man, for whichever of those reasons, he recognizes that each one has his own gift from God. First uh, Corinthians seven, verse seven. God gives some the gift of marriage and he gives some the gift of singleness. Uh, And um, that's the way in which God ordains things. And so Paul rejects absolutely the teaching of the pressure group that Christians should divorce on the ground that marriage is in itself sinful or that the sexual relationship within marriage somehow defiles the Christian and is displeasing to God. Now, this evening we are um, taking up where we left off this morning, which is verses 15 and 16. And this morning we looked at verses 12, 13 and 14, which with 15 and 16 are Paul's answer to the fourth question that has been asked by the Corinthians. And the question now is this. What if a believer is in a mixed marriage? Uh, Since, uh, and by that um, uh, we mean, and Paul means, um, since the marriage began, Christ saved one spouse and to date has not saved the other. What is the believer to do in those circumstances? This pressure group would have said, divorce, get out of the marriage. We saw this morning that Paul's answer in verses 12 to 14 is believers in mixed marriages are not to initiate divorce. They are not to end the marriage. Where the unbeliever is keen and pleased and wholeheartedly agrees to continue the marriage. And we saw that in verse 14, Paul gives a reason. And the reason goes right back into one of the central themes of Scripture, that God is the covenant God. And when he saves a man or a woman, uh, and they are part of a family, then God considers others in that family, in that household, to be sanctified. That doesn't mean that they are saved by virtue of their relationship with the believer. Rather, it means that they're set apart from 
and set apart to by God's decision and action. It means they have a privileged position. They are exposed continually to the witness of a Christian, to the life of Christ worked out in someone um, that they love dearly. And so Paul says, uh, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is not defiled by being um, uh, married. Uh, Sorry, the unbelieving husband is sanctified in the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the husband. In other words, the believer is not defiled and somehow um, unacceptable to God. That's what the false teachers were saying. Paul says, no, no. On the basis of God's covenant, the unbeliever is actually sanctified and set apart. And they're different from those who go to the pagan temples uh, and worship there. And God is displaying his grace and God is inviting that unbeliever to come to Christ and to trust in Christ. So that's where we got to this morning. The question now is, um, uh, what if the believer doesn't want, sorry, what if the unbeliever does not want to continue the marriage? Paul says uh, in, back in verse um, 12 and 13, if the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer. Well, that begs the question, what um, is the Christian to do? Or what is to happen if the unbeliever wants to end the marriage? And uh, we want to note this evening that Paul gives one instruction. And it is this. And this is the summary of what we're going to see tonight. Believers in mixed marriages are not to resist divorce. They're not to resist divorce. If the unbeliever wants to leave and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to have anything to do with your God. Our marriage has become a wreck since you came to Christ. Then Paul says that the believer must not, is not to in those circumstances to try and hold the unbeliever against their will. Look at what it says. The New King James Translated as verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Now you will have noticed when I read that this evening, I read it as if the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. And we are stating that tonight as a given because we traced that through last week in our morning service and saw that throughout this section, Paul is not talking about divorce at one point and separation at another point. He's talking about divorce throughout the section. So, now if the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. And this verb, depart, as it's translated here, uh, was used not only in scripture for divorce, but also in other ancient manuscripts or outside of the Bible. In that day. So let him divorce. Let the unbeliever, the unbelieving husband, divorce. Uh, Let the unbelieving wife divorce. Do not stop them obtaining a divorce. Do not prevent them. Now the question I want us to ask is, or I want to ask you, Does that surprise you? I think it should surprise us. And it surprises us, does it not, against what Paul has already written? Would you not expect, certainly as I've wrestled with this and thought about it and prayed about it, uh, I would expect Paul to say, do all you can to avoid divorce. Persuade them with all your powers of reasoning and commitment not to divorce, given that 
the unbeliever in the marriage enjoys a privileged standing before God. Um, I would have expected Paul to uh, say, do all you can uh, to keep the unbelieving partner under your Christian influence at all costs. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, let him, let her, that is the unbeliever, wanting to divorce, let them divorce. And Paul, I think because the believer, like you and me, would immediately think, well, we would expect that we should try and maintain the marriage at all costs. Paul immediately adds, a brother or sister, the believer, is not under bondage in such cases. And he's saying, they are not bound to maintain the marriage. Paul, I think, relieves the Christian of a burden that they might take upon themselves. Now, we'll come back to this later and see why Paul says that. But it's a very important principle that I think has a much wider application for Christian living and Christian relationships. There are responsibilities I do have as a believer to you, to my family, to the world. But there's also responsibilities that you have, that my family has, that the world has, and I can't take their responsibilities upon myself. And sometimes we're tempted to do that, and if we do do that, we potentially will break under the strain of that kind of situation. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. The believer must not take on a burden that is not his to bear. The believer, Paul is saying in this marriage, is not answerable, in this mixed marriage, is not answerable to God for the decisions or the deeds or the choices of the unbeliever in the marriage. I think Paul is recognizing something else here. Paul is recognizing that the believer cannot force their will on the unbeliever in that situation. The believer can't force their faith uh, on the unbeliever. The believer can't force their standard, their duty on the unbelieving partner or party in the marriage. Now that leaves us with a kind of conundrum that you may be already thinking of, and it's this. Is Paul teaching on the one hand, the believer cannot divorce the unbeliever, which is what we saw this morning, whilst the unbeliever, on the other hand, uh, can and has a right to divorce the believer. Well, actually, I think Paul is making no comment on whether the unbeliever's action is right or wrong. He's simply facing reality. That is what has happened. That is what is happening. And Paul could say it's wrong, as they would say in the country, to the cows come home, and it will not make a whit of difference to the unbeliever. They will do whatever they want in any case. But Paul has the ears of the believers. He has their pastoral interest, their pastoral concern upon his heart and upon his conscience before God. And so he must pastor them in the light of this, bringing the mind of Christ to bear upon this situation. And so um, Paul uh, could urge the non-Christian in mixed marriages not to divorce the believer on the basis of you have a privileged position and God um, has uh, given you this opportunity to come to faith. But that will mean nothing to the unbeliever in a mixed marriage, potentially. 
It'd be like talking to a nomad living in the desert about snow. It's utterly alien to their thinking. What God wants. What God thinks. So if the unbeliever in next, next marriage wants to divorce the believer, they will not send off a telegram to the Apostle Paul saying, Paul, we want a pastoral appointment. We want to obtain your advice. They'll not ask their believing partner, well, now, what did Paul say in that letter that was read in church last Lord's Day? Paul is addressing only the believer here. And we should not see that there's a contradiction in Paul's thinking or advice. He certainly says that the believer is not to divorce the unbeliever. And he believes that that is of God. But he's making no comment as to whether the action of the unbeliever is right in the sight of God or not. And I think if we were applying our logic consistently, we would say, no, it isn't. But it's the reality of what is happening. So, if the unbeliever wants a divorce, uh, Paul says, your responsibility is not to try and persuade them against their will. He says, let me rather remind you of what your duty is. And the believer does have a duty if the unbelieving partner in a mixed marriage wants divorce. What is that duty? Verse 15. My God has called us to peace. Uh, James, you just bring that up. That's the next um, slide. God has called us to peace. Paul is saying to the believer, you can... Take every night and you can sit down and you can debate and, in, and, and, and assure your unbelieving partner of your desire to have the marriage continue. You could even fight the bit out about it, um, trying to keep them, but it won't help. It won't make them change their mind. Uh, and if you did persuade them not to proceed with divorce, that is not going to be a good basis upon which to build an ongoing marriage. And I think, as I look at this, I just say, what wisdom Paul shows. What pastoral wisdom he shows. And what pastoral realism Paul has. Sometimes, as believers, we are not realistic uh, and we take one principle of scripture and we, we follow it through logically to the nth degree and we get a position that becomes unbearable to actually sustain. And I think Paul is saying to us here, and we, this is a wider application that I'm going to make because I realize this sermon this evening is potentially... Um, only applicable to um, a very small uh, group, if to anyone here this evening, in terms of our own lives, although it will be useful to us to know how to pastor in these situations. Well, so I want to make a wider application here of what Paul says. Here is someone who wants to do something which you as a believer don't want. You don't believe it's right, before God. Uh, you don't believe it's the best. Uh, and Paul says, well actually, don't take a burden upon yourself which is not yours. He says, rather, I want you to take upon yourself and remember, God has called you to peace. So don't go fighting the bit out. And I think there's an application. There are times in relationships, uh, within family, within the workplace, uh, within the church. And no matter what you say, it will not change the mind of another. Their mind is made up. Their decision has already been made. And instead of arguing 
and debating against their decision, wisdom would teach you and me to say to ourselves, do you know what? God has called us to peace. And I am going to let them make the decision. And I'm going to allow them to have their opinion. And I'm going to give them what they want. And in that situation, and you say, uh, as I am answerable to God, they are answerable to God for their decision, their action. So let's get back then just to see something else in the text here. Uh, with regard to this point that believers in mixed marriages are not to resist divorce. Um, we, we saw this morning that Paul gave a reason why the believer was not to initiate divorce. And you remember the word for that came out in verse 14? And with the illustration with Jenny, when her mum says, uh, you're not to go beyond a certain point for the cars go whizzing along the road. And you could get knocked down. Well, Paul does the same here in verses 15 and 16. There's exactly the same pattern in 12 to 14 and 15 and 16. And uh, with the command in verse 14, which is the equivalent, sorry, in verse um, 15, which is the equivalent of the command in verse 13 and 14. And now we have a 4 in verse uh, 16 which is the equivalent of the four in verse 14. So look at it. Four. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul, you see, he's not only a pastor, He's not only wise, he's not only realistic, but he remembers and he allows God to be God at all times. And salvation is not something that Paul can give to someone. Salvation is not something that a believer in a mixed marriage can give to the unbeliever, as we saw this morning. That's not possible. Um, but uh, it's something that God does. And the believer in the mixed marriage does not know whether their unbelieving husband will be saved. Um, and the believing husband in a mixed marriage does not know whether their unbelieving wife will be saved. We noted this morning the reason Paul does not allow the believer to divorce, the unbeliever, is due to God's covenant of grace. And in this covenant, God saves the believer by Christ. And God views the rest of the believer's household as sanctified, set apart by virtue of their relationship with the believer. Now, by teaching that principle, and this is really important, for covenant theology. And it's important for the application of baptism as well. In our families and as we work that out in our families. But by teaching this principle of the covenant. Paul is not suggesting. He's not saying that every unbeliever married to a believer. Will automatically and necessarily become a Christian. Nor is Paul saying that every child that has at least one believing parent, will automatically or necessarily become a believer. They are sanctified. But you remember we saw this morning in the reading of Scripture that Abraham had to keep the covenant. Abraham had to embrace the covenant as God revealed it. And our children have got to do that. And the unbelieving partner in a marriage, a mixed marriage, has got to do that. To suggest that there was something automatic uh, and uh, something necessarily that meant that the unbeliever always becomes a believer is unwarranted in scripture and it is an exceedingly dangerous presumption that some parts of the Christian church 
have fallen into. There are parts of the Christian church, sadly tonight, reformed churches, and they presume, they teach that every child will become a believer. That's not scriptural. Ishmael did not become a believer. Esau did not become a believer. They received the sign of the covenant. They were brought up in godly surroundings. And you see Paul saying exactly the same thing here with the unbelieving wife, the unbelieving husband. They can be surrounded with the influences of grace. And they could have a spouse that is exemplary as a Christian. But that unbelieving partner may still not come to faith. And as Paul justifies his command to the believer not to resist divorce if pursued by the unbeliever, his reason is the believer has no guarantee, the believer has no assurance that the unbeliever will be saved, even if the marriage lasted until the day death ended. All they can be sure of is that the marriage continues, is that that believer will or sorry, unbeliever will be continually surrounded with privilege and opportunity to come to faith in Christ. The verb save here is a synonym. It means actually it's used with the sense of win. Win. So um, the believer has no uh, way of knowing whether living with the unbelieving partner all their lives, uh, being faithful in prayer, having many opportunities to witness, um, whether they will win that unbeliever. It may be that the unbelieving partner, then having done all of that, dies unsaved. That's a very sad situation if that happens, but it can happen. That's what Paul is saying. So, let's summarize then, and let's come then to some applications uh, this evening. So we're seeing that in a mixed marriage, uh, the believer is not to initiate divorce. The believer is not to resist divorce if the unbelieving partner wants divorce. There are five applications, well four and then a question for us to go away and think about or a, an application which is more of a, a reflection to think about. There are clearly uh, two types of mixed marriage in the church today. There's only one type of mixed marriage according to scripture. In the church today there is a mixed marriage where a Christian chooses wrongly in the light of God's revealed will in Scripture to marry a non-Christian. And they enter into a marriage that is an act of disobedience before God because as we saw and as you see in verse 39, Paul says that the believer is to marry in the Lord, marry another believer. Now if that believer's faith is genuine. They usually realize that afterwards and they are repentant and so there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. It is not the unpardonable sin. It's a serious sin but it's not an unpardonable sin. Um, and to proceed to dissolve the marriage in the light of realizing they've made a mistake, that would be a second sin, I believe, in the light of what Paul and Scripture teaches. The way forward for that believer is to repent on the basis Christ died to cleanse me from all my sins. 
And then they are going to have to work out their faith in very challenging circumstances. And they are going to need a lot of help from the church. There will be times when they will have the if-only question. If only I had listened to God. If only I had listened to my parents. If only I had listened to my elders. If only I had, and there's those if-only. And then there will be the what-if questions. What would things have been like if I had married another believer? And we've got to help people not to go down that road. We, we can never change what we've done in the past. All you can do is embrace the present and the future in Christ. And there's grace for you as you do that. And so um, they're going to need that encouragement. As we were saying this morning, to draw upon the grace of Christ again and again. And to cry out in prayer, and the church needs to join in doing that, that the Lord will be merciful to the spouse who is not a believer. But the second type of mixed marriage is that which Scripture permits, and is in our passage, where both parties are unbelievers at the point of marriage, and Christ subsequently saves one. And in a sense, this is a good problem for a church to have. It's a good problem for a church to have because it's an evidence that Christ is using the witness of the church to bring hope to otherwise broken lives that are in the community uh, and he's saving people and he's bringing them into the church and the church is going to need a lot of grace and patience and endurance and forgiveness and time to help that person. And that's our responsibility. And we should be praying that the Lord will do that. And if the Lord does uh, hear our prayers, that he will save people and bring people into the community, that is the situation we're going to face potentially. And some much more complicated situations. That's the first application. The second application is um, the believer in a mixed marriage may end up being divorced by the unbeliever against their will, against their wishes. The reason for the divorce is the unbeliever does not want the daily reminder that there is a God in heaven and that there is a heaven to be gained and entered. And that there's a hell to be avoided. And that Jesus Christ, the believer by their life is saying, is the Son of God and the only way to be saved. And to go to heaven. And so if the unbeliever departs and divorces on that ground, it will be a heartbreaking experience for the believer. Their faith in Christ will have cost them to a degree that most of us cannot even begin to imagine. The loneliness, the sadness that will they'll have and the breakdown of this relationship and yet over against that there will be the joy that they are in Christ. And this, the person in this situation uh, who's divorced by the unbeliever will need constant prayer, will need ongoing support in their faith. Because again, they will ask, what if I had not become a Christian? Or if only I just, and there'll be all kinds, if only I'd been less zealous. What if I had done this instead of that? Would that have kept them? And I think we've got to try and help that believer realize that they are a living example of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Because Christ, their Savior, in accomplishing salvation, it caused him separation. Separation of the deepest 
and the most intense kind as he was separated from his father while he hung on that cross. And when we uh, come across that phrase in Philippians, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, that's what it means. The suffering of being isolated. The suffering of being separated. The suffering of being divorced. Um, if you want to put it like that. And then, thirdly, divorce is an extremely complex matter. And I haven't said this in, in either of in the sermons so far, but I want to say it now. It's an extremely complex matter in our modern world because of the ease with which it can be obtained and the breadth of grounds on which it is available in the law of our land. And by contrast, in Scripture, divorce is available on only two grounds. Two grounds. To the faithful party in a marriage where there's been adultery on the part of their spouse or there's some, um, um, there's maybe been a subsequent a marriage after a wrong divorce and that has been the act of adultery uh, and so uh, there's a, a biblical ground there on the basis of adultery but then it seems that Paul here is this narrower ground than actually our confession gives the confession um, has a wide statement which it talks about desertion and it's wider than what Paul uh, allows here. I don't know why they came to that point. I don't know the background. It's, it's something that I have to follow up a bit more. But the Paul here is saying that divorce may be pursued by the unbeliever. He's not saying it's right. But that may happen in a marriage where one spouse has become a believer since the marriage. That's the reality. We've got this huge chasm between what happens in our world and what happens in the church and, what, and what's allowed by the word of God. And so um, the church, we need as a church and we need as Christians to have our principles clear. And then we need to, we need to apply those pastorally and wisely and lovingly and actively to the situations that we face and find within marriages uh, as they break down today but we can't simply um, and passively accept what the world does That's, that would not be honouring to Christ then fourthly there will be many situations that are not covered in scripture for example one of the young people came to me this morning at the end of the service in fact two of the young people asked me what if a person is in physical danger because of a violent spouse? Or what about the person who is subjected to psychological or emotional abuse to the point that their mental and emotional well-being are in danger? Or what about the person who is married to someone who's involved in alcohol or substance abuse and all the money that comes into the house it goes down that road uh, and is spent in that way. Well, those are huge questions. And I can only touch in a few sentences tonight on the approach, the approach that the church has got to take. And I think in those circumstances, um, we would have to, if that's the kind of situation, a loving pastor, a wise pastor, a realistic pastor would have to say, to the person that is in that circumstance where this violence or abuse emotionally, mentally, or whatever way it's happening, we would have to say, you must, you need to withdraw from the marriage. And that's not saying you need to divorce. It's saying there needs to be some kind of withdrawal for your well-being. Um, and uh, whether... Uh, um, there's a point at which they could seek divorce that will be a way down the line and that will be after a lot of involvement by the church pastorate 
And the first point at which the church has got to be involved then is it's got to go to the man who's usually the offender in this case. Or it could be a woman. could be a wife. Uh, and the one who's causing these problems. And the church has got to engage with that person. If this is happening within the boundaries of the church, we cannot sit by and say we've nothing to say if people are being abused and we just turn a blind eye to it. We've got to speak to the abuser, whether it's emotional or physical or whatever. We've got to confront them firmly but lovingly with their sin, their need to repent, and the fact that if they're in the professing church, they're not living a life consistent with their profession. And so that whole road has got to be explored. And it could turn out that 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 spouse is actually not showing any evidence of goodness. In which case the church has got to follow that through. So do you see, I'm just trying to illustrate the scene. This is very, very complex. But we've got to have our principles clear. Because if we don't have our principles clear, we can't give wise, pastoral, realistic advice. So that's as much as I want to say on that. The final one that I just want to touch on this evening is this. It strikes me, as I've thought about this uh, and reflected on this over the past couple of weeks and worked my way through this section dealing with divorce, that the Church of Christ needs to be much more proactive in this whole area. Instead of being reactive, either when problems arise or when we are presented with a situation where someone is divorced uh, and the complications that come from that. I, I think we quite honestly have a gap and I, we, in, in our whole approach here, the church carries out marriages. We do that according to scripture. We do that and it's recognized by the state. And it seems to me that as a church and the church of Christ needs to think about where and is there a place when the church of Christ actually should be involved in situations and the ultimate outcome, as they say, we believe in the sight of God that you should, um, that you have a right to divorce scripturally and we actually are willing to declare that and then you proceed with that in the legal process in the courts of the land. We speak, we, we conduct marriages, we oversee marriages, but we simply stand by and we allow the state to deal solely with divorce. And I think we're remiss in that. I think we need to think about that. And so I leave you to reflect upon that. And with elder, an elder here tonight from another congregation, I'd be interested to hear the comments of my brethren about that. But I think it needs to be raised somewhere within our church. Um, and not solve all the problems but to be reactive you're always on the back foot as the saying is and you're not able to give the best pastoral counsel uh, and realistic counsel and I think that's why I'm saying that so I'll leave that for you to think about but let's be clear in our principles within a mixed marriage believers are not to initiate divorce uh, and they are not to resist divorce. Now, um, I have thought about that maybe we could have a midweek where you could put in questions if there's things that you want to raise. I'm willing to do that. It can't happen this week because we're pre-communion. Uh, but if there's an interest in that, then please do speak to me and we will set that up. I'll not promise that we'll be able to give all the answers, uh, but... Um, uh, if I felt the questions would be of some help to explore, then uh, I would be willing uh, to do that. Well, let's bow our heads as we remain seated and let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the word of God. We thank you that your law is perfect. 
We thank you that your law is not and your word is not given to us in order to put us in a cage so that we feel cramped and restricted and we cannot um, have a fullness of life. Indeed, Jesus said that he had come to give life and to give it in all its fullness. So the reality is that we have fullness of life when we build our lives upon Christ and upon his word. We realize how challenging that is in the area of relationships, within families, uh, within the church, uh, and within the world. And so as we've thought this evening and over these past uh, couple of weeks about what your word has to say about divorce uh, and in the context of uh, this passage, and we realize that we haven't said everything, we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to have clearly uh, establish principles from your word in our minds. Help us, O oh Lord, to be like the Apostle Paul, uh, to be those who, um, uh, as elders, are able to recognize when people are taking on burdens that are not theirs to bear, to be able to give wise, realistic, pastoral counsel in relationships, within marriage, within families, within the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to hear this call which Paul gave that it is our responsibility in relationships to, uh, to be called to peace. Lord, we pray this evening for any in our midst uh, who uh, are uh, divorced, uh, who have gone through this very difficult experience, uh, or um, are in a difficult uh, marital situation. We pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide. We pray, O oh God, that you would grant your grace and your comfort according to the needs in each situation. And we pray, Lord, that there would be that looking to Christ and that waiting upon him, uh, which brings life and hope and grace in the midst of our brokenness. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.